thing all the engineers and all the quantitative finance guys learned in the financial crisis was that you had this probability set. You know, the world just doesn't work in this perfect probability set, right? And so you can use models, you can use statistics, you can use math to approximate, to try to figure it out, make a really good guess. But at the end of the day, like you really need to have some margin of safety, some factor of safety, whatever you want to call it, in your models, in your pricing, in whatever you're doing, because like the model will never capture everything that you need it. Welcome everyone to this Liberty Ventures podcast. As always, my name is Alexander McCobin, founder and general partner of Liberty Ventures. And we're using this podcast to accelerate the development of this ecosystem of purpose-driven business leaders, investors, executives, and entrepreneurs who are all committed to advancing a free and prosperous future. And I am tickled pink to be able to talk with an old friend, Jared Frost, who has a fascinating career path. He's worked on Wall Street, he's been in real estate, he's an entrepreneur himself now, and has a ton of stories and insights from those many experiences to share with you all today. But Jared, I'm not going to try and cover everything. I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Thank you so much for being an early member of the Liberty Ventures ecosystem and for taking the time to share your wisdom with the community today. Well, thanks for having me, Alexander. Uh, I'll be honest, this is like my first real actual podcast that I'm not personally hosting. So I just appreciate an opportunity to, to do this for the first time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess my background is where, where we want to start, right? So yeah, I always like to start with your story. What's led to who you are and what you're doing today? So as you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, first of all, thank you again. And yeah, as you kind of mentioned, like this is I'm probably the craziest, weirdest, oddest finance doc that people have ever met. So um, little known fact about me, I actually have my undergraduate degree in aerospace engineering. So I spent two summers um, you know, working on the drone program and flight simulators and all that kind of stuff. And that's what kind of really convinced me that I hated engineering and wanted to get into something a little more dynamic. Uh, and that's when I got into quantitative finance and financial engineering. So my master's in, is in that. Uh, I spent seven years on Wall Street trading structured derivatives for uh, Credit Suisse. May she rest in peace. Uh, and, uh, you know, learned a lot. I mean, I was there for uh, Bears bankruptcy, Lehman's bankruptcy. I was there for the flash crash, the all, all the debt crises between Europe, the U.S. downgrade, Europe 2, and all that stuff. And so you learned a lot. Um, left Wall Street, got into real estate private equity. So I was working for a firm out of Denver doing some uh, real estate development in Mexico, uh, Mexico City, Monterey. Uh, outside of Cabo, worked on some special sits, kind of commercial stuff. Uh, and then honestly, you know, life kind of hit me in the face a little bit, had to hit the reset button. And, um, you know, that's when I got into classic residential real estate sales. Uh, you know, I've been a realtor for the last six or seven years, actually no longer a realtor, but I've been a real estate agent uh, for the last six or seven years. And, you know, we're, we're we've kind of stumbled upon a model where yeah, I'm lucky where I can use all these different things, right? Whether it's computer, like knowledge of computers and technology, uh, knowledge of social media, knowledge of finance, knowledge of kind of how all this stuff is working in order to create a better model to deliver residential real estate across the country. So, uh, you know, now leaning on all those different skill sets and paths to try and create a product that I think can really change uh, affordability for Americans. So I want to get into that venture in a little bit, but let's take it back yeah. uh, to, uh, to the beginning of, of your story. I actually didn't know myself that you were in engineering before you went into everything else. Why Why did you not stick with that? You said you realized that's not what you wanted to do, but why? Yeah, so um, I actually, have, yes, my, my undergraduate is in aerospace engineering. I actually spent two summers at Sandia National Labs in Albuquerque uh, working on uh, some flight simulators for the drone program. So, 
Um, what's really interesting about that was that, you know, the technology was really cool, right? It was augmented reality, flight simulators. And, you know, if you, you can imagine it was Pokemon Go for Navy SEALs. It was pretty much what we were working on, you know, 10 years before it came out. And I'm pretty sure my code ended up in Pokemon Go. I don't think it actually did, but I, 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 I have suspicions. So see, you were looking for some, some quotables on this podcast and that's a great one right there. Pokemon Go for Navy SEALs. I love that. Pokemon Go for Navy SEALs. That's pretty much what it was. And so, um. Yeah, it was really cool. And you and I could spend as much time as you want talking about that stuff. We could talk about the evolu evolution of drone technology, the evolution of aerospace technology over the last 20 years, kind of how, you know, what SpaceX is doing, all super fascinating stuff. But the problem is that for me, uh, it just wasn't dynamic enough. I would go into the office and, you know, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. was the same thing. The next day, you knew exactly what you were going to work on. The next day, you knew exactly what you were going to work on. And I just kind of saw my life all rolled out in front of me. And I'm like, I can't. Ah, it just seems a little boring to me. So, um, of course, found the opposite, uh, you know, the opposite arena in derivatives trading, especially during the financial crisis. And, uh, you know, it just kind of stuck. And so I, I tend to go more toward ventures that are, I guess, are more dynamic, uh, more chaotic. <laughs> I, I don't really know how else. Well, let's illustrate the chaos of working on Wall Street, being a derivatives trader for everyone here. I know you've got stories through this. What's the first one that comes to mind that represents your time there? Uh, I need to, I'm going to censor this uh, a, a little bit. Uh, I will say the language was a little, do what you need to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, it's also changed a lot. Um, I, I think I really got, in my impression, kind of the last gasp of, I would say, the traditional capital commitment, liquidity, like liquidity providing model on Wall Street, where uh, there are a few stories, one, you know, a few that are probably too long, but one really quick. So I was trading uh, energy metals and mining. So I was responsible for market making it for energy metals and mining sector, all single stocks in the US. We traded a dispersion strategy. So everyone was kind of responsible for different sectors and we could look at the portfolio as a whole and kind of do our risk, but every trader had to know a name and so or different names and stuff like that. So uh, Oxidel Petroleum, ticker Oxy, uh, I, I forgot when and what, or it, the years are kind of whatever. I, I want to say it's like 2013 or something like that. Uh, I think it was summer maybe like a June or August report or something like that. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest clients of the bank, this massive hedge fund uh, that one of my very good buddies actually used to work at, um, calls at 3.50. So the market closes at 4 o'clock. I've got, you know, 10 minutes to go. And he's like, okay. Uh, the, the call from the sales guy was, hey, Frost, uh, Oxy, par calls, 10,000 how? That's all he said. And what he said there was, Par meaning 100, calls meaning upside contracts, uh, 10,000 meaning 10,000 contracts is our options on a million shares of $100 stocks. It was a $100 million trade, and they were reporting 10 minutes later. So they were reporting at 4 o'clock. Uh, the hedge against that, uh, that trade would have been $50 million of stock to buy uh, of Oxy with 10 minutes to go. There was no way to like for me to get out of that, you know, whatever. So of course, like my bosses hear this, like everyone's freaking out, you know, cause like, it's just, you know, we, and we have 10 seconds to make a market. Um, and you know, we made a market that we thought was right. Uh, it wasn't very good, but like, it was a big trade. Uh, and so, you know, the guy like hangs up with my sales guy, my sales guy, who by the way, was the biggest creep, like just jerk. Uh, like, of course he represented this, like everyone was just pissed off. Yeah. Whatever. Mark closes. Fast forward 15, 20 minutes, Oxy reports, the stock's running. We would have lost a ton of money on that. 
Um, but the guy calls us back at 4.15. So like futures trade from 4 to 4.15. So he's trading futures the entire time. And he calls us back at 4.15. He's like, hey, you know, um, is, is this Frost, the, the trader? I'm like, yeah, man, what's going on? He's like, hey, you know who this is? Let me guy knows this. He's like, next time I give you a call, don't be a dick and make me an effing market. And then just like hangs up on me. And the best part was that my entire desk was listening to the call. So there were about 40 people on mute because, you know, you can see all the lights and stuff like that. Um, and that's kind of what it's like being a driven trader on Wall Street. You get yelled at uh, all the time. You never make anybody happy. You have to protect your book. And honestly, the best day is when you just don't like everyone just kind of walks away and, uh, you know, no one's hurt too badly. Uh, and that's kind of what it's like being being a trader on Wall Street, for sure. And here I thought you were going to say the best day is when you get to walk away from that finally and move into something else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you know, traders don't die, right? They just move on to a different capital. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's whether you're, you know, obviously I went to Wall Street because when I was there, I mean, it was still height of the financial, like the run up, right? So, I mean, I got, I was in, I got into finance in 40506, like started trading in 07 uh, and no trader went to Wall Street in 2007, not wanting to start his own hedge fund. Right. I mean, that, that, that was the only reason why you went, like, why would you want to stay as a sell side trader? Uh, and so, yeah, I, I just think that once you get hooked on PL responsibility, whether it's trading or operational PL, and whether, when you're used to kind of making decisions, you know, being in, uh, you know, being responsible for what your production is, it's kind of hard to give that up. Uh, and so, you know, even though that was a very weird kind of entrepreneurial setting, it definitely taught me a lot around how people react, like what risk is, how to handicap things, like, uh, you know, what liquidity actually means. And so, um, it was a really good experience. Being on Wall Street, especially through the 2008 financial crisis, I know that you learned a lot from that. What, what were say the top three lessons you took away, especially as you moved on into other paths with your career? Oh, Wow. Uh, those are, that's a great question. Um, I think the first one is that anything that can happen will happen. Like, um, you know, the thing, all the engineers and all the quantitative finance guys learned in the financial crisis was that, you know, you had this probability set and, you know, the world just doesn't work in this perfect probability set. Right. And so you can use models, you can use statistics, you can use math to approximate, to, uh, you know, try to figure it out, make a really good guess. But at the end of the day, like you really need to have some margin of safety, some factor of safety, whatever you want to call it, you know, in your models, in your pricing and whatever you're doing, because like the model will never capture everything that you need it, need it to. Uh, I think that was probably the first lesson because I was a very data model driven guy through Wall Street. Um, and then as you get into private equity and you get into, in my opinion, you know, the hand-to-hand combat of like building a business, uh, you realize model doesn't quite do it. <laughs> so, um, which has been great. Uh, I think the second thing too is really understanding like your own personal tolerance for risk, right? So like, uh, and not being over levered yourself. So just know, like making sure that you personally always have that, you know, the savings, the cushion, the buffer, the rainy day fund, whatever you want to call it. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're, um, you know, uh, a hedge fund manager, uh, derivatives trader, or, you know, an IT guy on a help desk, like you, you never really know what life is going to throw at you. And if you, the more cushion you have, the more margin you have in your own personal life, the more optionality you have and maintain. And what I've realized is that, you know, I think people really get stressed out when they lose optionality. And so the more you can maintain your own optionality to make sure that you have the resources you need to make, to pivot and do whatever you need to do. I mean, that, that's how you can really protect yourself. 
I love that recommendation, especially on keeping optionality for yourself as an individual, because especially as being an entrepreneur, you throw yourself into whatever you're building absolutely 120%. But it, but it can be incredibly stressful if you if you don't have some sort of protection for what you're doing. And it can and I've seen some people really crash and burn from not keeping some kind of optionality while still throwing everything out. And even, you know, whether it's personal life or the business you're building or whatever, I mean, maintaining optionality should always be one of your highest priorities, right? And, and even going back to the conversations you and I had initially when you were getting Liberty Ventures off the ground, like it was like, well, I do this or do I do that? And, and really trying to evaluate like, well, if you make a decision, does that decision eliminate other potential pathways for you in the future, right? And so... um you know, maintaining that optionality for as long as possible and maintaining an ability to exercise that optionality, right, is what really gives people the power over any situation, in my opinion. And this is actually something that I talk with a lot of our founders about. Uh, I'm noticing it's a pattern that keeps coming up. People are talking about an exclusive partnership with one client that wants to work with them or the possibility of acquisition or bringing on other co-founders. And one of the key questions I always ask is, do you need to make this exclusive? Is there a way to just keep your options open? Or they may not want to have even have a conversation with someone because they don't think it's going to work out. And the thing I always tell them is, take the, take the call, have the meeting, explore the possibilities. You don't know where it's going to go yet, and you want to keep your options open. And I think too many people stick to one path or they think they need to make something exclusive when they really don't need to. Totally. And, and when they do that, they also don't think about like the structure, right? So, I mean, exclusivity can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, uh, even though it doesn't seem that complicated. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think w whenever you're talking about those types of contracts, exclusivity, bringing on partners, JVs, like whatever it is, like just also make sure you negotiate the divorce before you do the marriage, right? Like figuring out how to unwind those things so you can get back to, you know, ha ha being in control of your own destiny. Uh, is so important. And as someone who's gone through now multiple partnerships, multiple partners, multiple endeavors, uh, you know, nothing lasts forever, right? And so you, you just have to be prepared for it all to end. Uh, and preparing for the end gives you optionality, right? Because then you're not stuck into a bad situation when it does end because you're prepared, prepared for it. So uh, I, I think those are all very interesting. I mean, absolutely great points that you brought up, for sure. And you're absolutely right that nothing lasts forever. And I'll put a finer point on that. Everyone leaves the company or the organization they're in at some point, whether by choice, by force, or by death. It will happen. And so you have to start planning for that when you're starting a company or when you're joining one from the get-go. Totally. Totally. I mean, I don't know if it's happening as now. Now, I'm, I'm not in the tech space. I never was in the tech space. So like me and tech bros, like, I, I don't, I, I'm sure we have a lot to talk about. Sometimes like I, I just am more of a traditional business guy. Uh, and you know, so like when I bring on partnerships, I'm like really trying to get people to last long term. And so I just like, oh, let's bring on this, you know, CTO for a year so you can build out this thing and give them all this stuff and equity and like, we'll go public and figure it out. Like, that's just not the business that I'm in. Uh, I, I, just from what I understand, like those types of engagements and relationships get really comp, like really tough, you know? And so whether you're, or in, if you're not prepared for the end, if you're not prepared for that transition out. If you as a founder are thinking this person's going to stay long term, but this person's really planning on staying shorter term, you can really get off sides. And so really having those conversations, having the open communication, uh, all that's super important. And that open communication gets to managing and an alignment of expectations. It It's okay if you want to bring someone on for only one or two years. Just be very clear about that and so that they're on the same page. 
And you also want to know if someone's joining because they only want to stay one or two years so that you're able to plan out how you structure the team and what you're working on that way. There's no there's no single right way and no wrong way to structure relationships so long as you have a clear purpose in mind and that you're aligned with all parties involved in order to achieve that the way that everyone wants to. And yeah, make it a win-win, right? Like uh, find the win-win, figure out where you can. As long as it's still a win-win situation, you're typically have a really good shot of success. And I, I think you as a founder just need to know when I think one of the biggest things that I've learned, started learning as an entrepreneur and founder, manager, or whatever, is just like starting to feel the energy of when it shifts from a win-win to not a win-win, right? When uh, maybe just a win zero or whatever, and not a win-loss, because you really know when it happens a win-loss. When it shifts from that win-win to a win zero, um, the zero is really not motivated to stay in the relationship anymore. So, like you know, really any sort of uh, you know, noise, block, chaos can really you know, disrupt those types of relationships. So I think you, know, you as a founder need to ensure that you're creating win-win relationships for as many people in your organization. So that way, you know, you can kind of withstand some of the volatility that might happen in the market, uh, you know, withstand some of the stress. Because if you only have, if you have these loose relationships and not aligned relationships, like when stress happens, people are just going to flee. Uh, and, and that makes it really tough to rebuild. 100%. Now, I know that that you're still building everything out for your new venture, and you're probably also going to have to censor yourself a little bit here. But as much as you're willing to share, tell everyone about the company that you're building right now and what prompted you to do this. Yeah, no, I I appreciate it. Um, you know, I think the prompt and you know, give me like a thing if, if I'm going too long because I, I talk I could talk about this all day. Uh, you know, the prompt I think is is multifaceted. I think the prompt is, you know. I went from Wall Street derivatives trading to cold calling for listings. Like that was how I spent my first year cold calling, uh, you know, 20 hours a week, um, literally dialing the phone book to try and get expired listings. Uh, cause I didn't know anybody in Denver. So I, I taught myself how to cold call, how to sell, how to market. And through that experience, before I started building my team, I was able to leverage other people's time and stuff like that. Um, one of the biggest, hardest questions I ever had to answer as a real estate broker was, why should I hire you? Uh, you're not cheaper. Uh, you're not as experienced. You, you don't know the market as well. And blah, 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 blah. And we can just go down the list, right? Why should I hire you? And so all fair questions, right? I mean, you're making one of the biggest financial decisions of your life. Like you should be asking that question. Why should I hire you? Um, and then at the same time, um, uh, at the same time, I, I think what's really interesting is that uh you know, I started seeing kind of what's happening in the global macro landscape around some of these demographic shifts. After having dealt with that experience of being asked, like, why should I hire you? And having to, um, you know, kind of manage the sales process without really any good objection handler behind that. Uh, you know, I started seeing in the macroeconomic landscape what was happening. And, you know, this draws on some of the experience I have from Wall Street in terms of really just understanding, like, how money works, how the macro econ uh, economy fits into the financial markets, like the position that the Fed is in, some of the demographic stuff going on in the housing market and seniors and rates and the whole thing. And what I realized is that, you know, there's going to be an affordability crisis if there isn't already. I, I would argue we're in the middle. And there's no way, there's not going to be a way to solve that through the physical real estate supply chain. So, you're not going to be able to lower real estate prices by flooding the housing market in the United States with supply of new homes, kind of like you did in 2007, right? Like materials are extremely expensive. Labor has gotten extremely expensive. Land is extremely expensive. And so 
It's just really hard to build right now. And you're not going to get millions of homes being built to flood the market and bring prices down. And so if you really want to solve this affordability crunch, the only way to do it is through financial engineering. Uh, so as a former financial engineer and a derivatives trader and someone who really understands like how, you know, how the capital markets flow all the way into giving mom and pop a mortgage on their own, uh, I think there's a real opportunity to make that process significantly more efficient. Uh, and as a result, it's our mission to increase affordability across the country by 30%, uh, effectively uh, taking $3,000 a month mortgages now and moving them down to $2,000 a month. Um, and I, I, and I think that's one of the biggest things that we can offer for the country. Uh, I mean, this is a, a model in my opinion that, uh, obviously provides a lot of social utility in terms of giving, co uh, consumers a lot discretionary spending back. Uh, it helps keep home prices higher, which allows for higher home equity so that baby boomers can you know, draw on those savings and not have their savings evaporate. And on the last side, it's also beneficial for real estate agents and mortgage originators because we can decrease earnings volatility by actually helping them answer the question, why should I hire you? Uh, and so if we can help a consumer afford a home that's physically 30 or 40% more than another real estate broker, uh, I, I think we're doing a pretty good job. So what I love about that story is it really is bringing together everything you've done in your career together. It takes, it takes your background with financial products, your experience with real estate, and finding a, a way to combine the two in order to help people out. And I think that's a pretty common path entrepreneurs take that not enough people realize. It's about bringing together everything you've learned, everything you've developed skills in, and applying it to a big problem that people are facing that no one else has figured out how to solve yet. And you know, it, it didn't start out this way. And I, I think most founders even say that, right? Like, oh, I started to just... I just want to pay my bills and not have to move back to New York with my tail between my legs. Like all I wanted to do for that first year was like get through my first year because I knew if I got through my first year, your second year was going to be easier, right? And so, it, you know, when, when Blue Pebble started six or seven years ago, this was not about changing the world, changing, you know, changing the way residential real estate is delivered. Uh, what we realized though is that we were relying on a lot of partners um, in terms of getting us to the closing table who frankly were not earning uh, their keep. Um, and so as we, as I learned more about the, like kind of the other side of the coin and, the, and kind of how real estate is financed and, you know, how people are really paid and the value that's added in that kind of finance, you know, financial supply chain really realize that there's not a lot of value added. And, and at the end of the day, you know, the entire mortgage industry is selling 10 year bonds to mom and pop with a 4% bid offer spread. And so as a former derivatives trader who's used to seeing stuff in pennies, and making money. If I have a 4% spread on one of the most liquid markets in the world, there's got to be an opportunity for us to take advantage of that. And, and that's what we're going to do. As you're building up the company, what's been your biggest, what's been the biggest lesson you've taken away about being an entrepreneur as opposed to the time you had on Wall Street or in private equity making this transition? It's always harder. It's always harder when everything is going to be. It's always harder. It's always going to take longer and it's always going to be more expensive. And it doesn't even matter how. Whatever you think it's going to be, multiply it by two in terms of hardness, time, and resources. And then once you think that's scary, you multiply it by two again. And if you're okay with that, then you should actually go go after it. It's kind of what I realized. Like the, I, I, I like to think, and I understand now based on personal experience, I'm not the best handicapper, business planner, or whatever. Like you know, things don't always go to plan, right? And uh you know, uh, it, it's just amazing how difficult 
it can be right. Like, um, I know that's not everyone's experience, but for us, like, I mean, that that's been the experience. It's every day is kind of like a, a slot, <laughs> you, you know, uh, we're just joking around. Like after I get off this, uh, I need to go log on to three secretary of state websites and like update stuff. And you know, like, okay. And that takes me away from doing sales calls and stuff. So it's just every, every day is something new. Every, every, it's going to be harder. It's going to be more expensive. Um, you're going to be questioning yourself. Am I doing the right thing? And, and I think that's also why it's extremely important for entrepreneurs to find like a really good purpose behind their company. So it, it can't just be, uh, and it took me a while to find this in my company. Like it, it can't just be making money and surviving, right? Especially if you're an entrepreneur, like there are a lot of easier, much, much easier ways to make money and survive than be an entrepreneur. You do not like, if that's all you want to do, go get a W2 nine to five. You can make a great living now and you will for the rest of your lives, especially if you're Gen X or Gen, or uh, if you're Gen X, sorry. Gen Z, millennial, even Gen X is like, we have jobs forever because these boomers are going to have demand until they're like for years, right? So like, if you just want a job, go get a job. But like, what I've realized is if you want to be an entrepreneur, you really need to have some purpose behind what you're doing. Uh, otherwise, those really long hours, those weekends, those early, mo early mornings, the driving th 300 miles in a day to like all over town, uh, it's going to be miserable. I think that is a fantastic piece of advice to end on. But as I told you before, I have one question I always like to leave with, and this gets to a general philosophy that I have, that it's always best to give something first to people. And that if you want to connect with someone new, learn a new business, get into a new industry, best thing you can do when reaching out to them is to offer to help them out, just volunteer to do something. So for anyone listening who's interested in what you're doing, wants to pick your brain, or just wants to make a connection, what's something they could volunteer to do for you that you would get really excited about and respond positively to? Yeah. I mean, right now we're trying to change the world, one real estate agent and one mortgage originator at a time. So, you know, we're trying to get the message out about what we're doing. We're, we're trying to bring people onto our platform and just get more reps through what we think is a, a more efficient system. So uh, if someone wants to tell me just an introduction to their favorite realtor or their favorite mortgage broker, would be great. Like I, I'm just trying to talk to as many uh, of my colleagues as possible because we, we, you know, we don't have a business plan to have a hundred thousand agents like some of these, uh, you know, bigger brokers out there. We just need eight or 10,000 and, uh, that's over the next 10 years. So like, yeah, we'll start one by one and do it that way. So if anyone wants to help and reach out or connect, I'm happy to talk, happy to talk about what we're doing. Uh, if you want to help just an introduction to your favorite real estate agent or mortgage broker, uh, would be absolutely awesome. Fantastic. Jared, thank you for taking the time to share this with the community. Thanks for everything that you're doing. I'm super excited to see where you take it. Alexander, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. This, is, this has been a lot of fun.